What do you get when the audacious and the therapist collide? A crash course in unpolished therapy. Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca aren't afraid to spin out of control, tackling all the tough talk. Their weekly sesh meets at the corner of Audacity and Advice, where their wheels and yours get turned upside down. Hey guys, happy Wednesday. It is Rachel Silver Cohen. So you know what that means. It's another episode where we have ditched the couch. We have grabbed the mics. We are breaking down all the unpolished wreckage on the corner of audacity and advice with none other than my favorite co-host, Dr. Boca. What's up, DB? How you doing, Rach? I'm doing well. How's your day going so far? It's going well. You know, I always love our Wednesdays together and I'm looking forward to today. I've really come to see now after 90 episodes or 89 or wherever we're at that it's really the peak of my week is Wednesdays and it's something I can count on. So thank you for being so diligent and consistent and always showing up to break down the wreckage with me. Well, I guess it's a good thing that there's always wreckage to break down, right? <laughs> well, with us, there's always wreckage, right? There's and if always not, wreckage. We'll find some for sure. Exactly. And you know what? I, well, first of all, thank you. Because again, it, as I always say, it's part and parcel. So I can't break down the wreckage unless I have someone to help me break it down. And that is you. So I thank you for your time and attention with me every week. And one of the things I want to mention to you today, because again, I know it's not real therapy, even though I really, I think I've sort of come a little bit of a way since a we started. A long way. A long okay. way. Give well, yourself thank you. credit. Okay, well, thank you. I will. Um, but in my quote unquote real therapy, mm -hmm. sometimes I bring in themes that you and I have sort of touched on a little bit. And then I try to really connect the dots when I actually am on a couch with a therapist. And one of the things that came up the other day, which was interesting, and I don't know why I was going backwards, but I had this visual of a time where I guess I remembered that words really have an impact on other people. And I know sometimes in my unpolishedness, I say things sometimes without thinking it through. And I have a sharp tongue, if you will. And I have this one memory. This is from many years ago where I was in an argument with a couple friends of mine and I called them losers. Mm. Okay. I was like, oh, you guys are such losers. Now, to me, I don't think I meant it so literally in the sense that like, in the grand scope of life, there's people who are winners and people who are losers and you're like bottom of the barrel garbage, right? right? But in the moment, I guess like that was just one of the words in my repertoire of how I felt describing someone who had hurt my feelings or disappointed me or I was upset or whatever. And right. the reaction that I got from my friends about calling them losers was so dramatic and hmm. so much grander than whatever it was we were even arguing with to begin with that it struck such a nerve and it created a really big rift to mm -hmm. the point even that now in therapy that impact that I had so negatively on someone else has now really kind of scarred me because I didn't mean it like that sure and I would also argue that maybe my friends probably don't even remember, you know, a lot of times like they let it go, but the person who really did something that was not so nice, it now I'm the one to blame here and I'm the one carrying the baggage on that. But sure. the reason I bring it up is that it, in the conversation, it led me to think about how impactful words are and how strong of an impact it makes on other people without even recognizing it. And it reminded me that in today's world of, I guess we're also hyper-vigilant with therapy and it's, yes. and it's a topic now that's almost like become like in vogue, like, well, who's your therapist or what type of therapy are you involved in, et cetera, sure. et cetera. Yes. I mean, look, i.e. our podcast on polished therapy. And it reminded me that there's so many therapy or mental health buzzwords out there that I don't know if we're using correctly, if they're coming out of turn, if they're overusing words that we're not even sure what it means. And I know I'm being long-winded, but where I'm getting at is when we talk about narcissists and mm -hmm. narcissism, it seems like this is like the hot topic of 2020, 2021, 2022. And here we are now in the beginning of 2023. I can't get a 
away from the topic of narcissists and narcissism, you and I have kind of briefly skimmed the surface on it. And then we both kind of said like, you know what, maybe it would be a great idea because this is such a big column here relative to mental health. If we brought in someone who could really help us break down the wreckage. So I'm loving this, right? You know, it's one of my few quotes that I say all the time that words have power and they really do define and create our reality. And I feel so strongly about that. And so, yes, as a therapist and as a person, there are so many words that I find when I'm working with my patients or even talking to my friends where we throw it out so loosely. And yet when I ask them, do you even know what that word means? So I can make sure that I'm on the same page as them. They don't. They're off on how they understand it or what they think it is. And so what happens is they're walking through life thinking and labeling and judging based on something that's a creation in their head or from the, you know, the world around us. And I would say that narcissism is one of those huge ones. You know, we have narcissistic personality disorder and narcissism, and it's on a continuum. And there's so many different ways to understand that and conceptualize it. And so I'm always trying to differentiate that with my patients. And so if you have somebody that can come in here and speak about this and educate us and help us differentiate the colloquial meaning of it, as well as what it really means clinically and what it looks like. I am all over that like a fly on shit. Okay. Well, I'm happy that you are open to it because I do have a guest today who I think can really help us make meaning out of the mess or the madness that is narcissism. And I want to introduce you and our audience to Amy Helms. She is the founder and owner of New Hope Counseling and Wellness Center, LLC in South Carolina. It's a group practice specializing in the treatment of eating disorders, trauma, PTSD, and related disturbances. Amy is licensed as a therapist. There is a whole battery and alphabet of letters after her name that Mm -hmm. I'll you know, post to our website thereafter. But she is licensed as a therapist and dietitian with an emphasis on eating disorders and trauma. She is trained in advanced forensics, parent coordination, and social investigation. She frequently works with attorneys and guardians ad litium on high conflict divorce cases. She is a frequently invited speaker on narcissism and narcissistic abuse and discusses these topics on her podcast and has a course to teach others as well, all things narcissist and narcissism. So without further ado, Amy Helms, thank you so much for joining us on the corner of Audacity and Advice today. We really do appreciate your time. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I'm very excited to break down what these buzzwords mean and help help bring some insight into what the difference is as we are hearing them so much right now. Absolutely. We are. It it seems really almost like it's become this um, designer word in the mental health space. My guess is we're probably more than not abusing what even the definition is. So let's maybe just start with that. Do you want to just for Dr. Boca and myself and the listeners out there in, in layman terms, what is a narcissist and what is narcissism? The actual term narcissism means someone that has an excessive admiration for themselves. So just that term in itself is not how we're using it. No. So if you just think about that, how many people do we know that admire themselves excessively? A lot. I know a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, but then we bring in, and it was interesting, I was searching, you know, in preparation for the podcast, the term narcissist. I, at one point, found about 20 different types of narcissists just online that wow. people came up with. And that's insane to me. I mean, there's even abbreviations, you know, narc, my narc, uh, my narcissist, my narc, I mean, just and crazy. But the term actually came about in a really early 19th century, just to describe an early admiration. And then Sigmund Freud kind of took that term, wrote a book about it, and it was meant as a stage of development. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of spread from there. And it was meant in a way to be healthy. As we develop, we kind of expand, you know, baby 
nurturing, if parents nurture correctly, then we develop in a healthy way. We develop that secure attachment and develop secure relationships. And it's a good thing. And if not, then I know y'all have dwelled into attachment styles mm-hmm. in other podcasts. But mm-hmm. if that development doesn't happen or the correct way, we develop that insecure attachment. So narcissism in itself is was originally intended to be a good thing. Right? And even with the small percentage in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual or DSM, it's listed anywhere from 0% mm-hmm. to like 3%, depending on what study you look at. Even those numbers, you know, we have to look at with kind of a grain of salt because we're looking at someone that is labeled with one of probably the worst, if not one of the worst diagnoses you could have because it's talked about being untreatable and, you know, someone with pretty insane characteristics. They're not going to walk into a doctor's office and say, hey, I think I have narcissistic personality disorder. My understanding, which is limited because I'm mm-hmm. one of these people that's more of the mainstream um, designer verbiage of, oh, narcissistic yeah. this, narcissistic that. I've even been one to call myself a narcissist. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. guessing I'm not because in the little bit of knowledge I do have, my understanding is, is that if you truly are a narcissist, you don't even know that you're a narcissist. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I say it tongue in cheek with me. Is it just that I'm selfish or self-absorbed? And I wonder what the actual difference is. What are the characteristics for for someone who truly is a narcissist? What what are we looking for as the opposing person in a narcissistic relationship? The true narcissist that we want to watch out for, the main difference is going to be a lack of empathy in many domains of life. So they don't respond to emotions. Um, There is going to be real no concern when they hurt or when they cause a rising or relationship. There's a lack of empathy is going to be the biggest thing that you will see. So then if they have a lack of empathy, and that's sort of a characteristic across the board, would it be true to say then that a narcissist doesn't even know that they're a narcissist because they can't even empathize with whatever that emotion or lack thereof would be? That's correct. Okay. Wow. That's scary. That That's a scary, scary thing. So you have this, you know, this heightened um, cue that somebody is a narcissist, a true narcissist by not being able to empathize. Is it, you know, your experience that they are able to empathize in some areas of their life or they truly cannot empathize in any areas of their lives? It depends on whether it's a true empathy or whether we're looking at the I'm sorry and sincere like sincerity versus empathy are we looking at and what they're trying to gain from it are we trying to gain and in work or gain status by showing the empathy or are we looking to gain respect or admiration from a coworker by showing empathy toward the spouse and so that's not really true empathy Well, yeah, that sounds like it's manipulative. That sounds like it's premeditated. That sounds like it's someone who is so untrustworthy with other people's emotions that they are the ones who are pulling the strings relative to when I'm going to show empathy that is going to work to my advantage versus when I'm going to pull the I have no empathy card. And that's confusing for me, to be perfectly honest, because again, my layman knowledge, my limited knowledge on narcissism in the true form versus what I just think a narcissist is or what those characteristics present, I think maybe I can't be alone in that. My guess is that other people feel that way too. And they get confused on really having a diagnosis here of narcissism versus someone who's like just a total son of a bitch who doesn't know how to communicate and have relationships. And it leads me to my question to you, Amy, if you would be gracious, would you share a little bit about your personal story for our listeners and how speaking and educating others on narcissistic behavior became so important to you? That was great timing because I was actually thinking of a story when you were talking about that. So I was about to say an example was my ex-husband when he donates things with his office, Mm. he calls the, the news to take a picture or a video, a story. 
Ah, so it's not really, you know, empathy or showing concern. It's to make sure that he's front page. Right. So he gets he gets the admiration for doing the gesture that is supposed to be coming from an altruistic or kind, generous place. Yeah. Actually, my divorce anniversary is coming up in um, two days. So congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. But um, actually, it was you had to be informed by a clinical psychologist that I was married to someone with narcissistic personality disorder and was handed a piece of paper and said, you highlight things that you you know, observe in your relationship. Mm-hmm. It was highlighting and highlighting and highlighting. And I was like, oh, okay, there you go. And like everything's highlighted. The first things I noticed, I were some of those like jabs, those subtle little digs that mm-hmm. were kind of degrading my personality. Mm-hmm. It was on our honeymoon. It was a comment. This I'm going to take a before picture because all women gain five pounds a year. And I need to remember what you used to look like. Mm. or it was degrading my job, degrading every little thing I did. And it didn't seem like big things, but over time they built up and I didn't realize what was going on until like bigger and bigger, bigger things happened. Mm. And then I began to feel like, you know, I had no other options, but I was also being told I had no other options. Mm. And, and I didn't really realize how bad it was until I had left and I went into the 30-day hearing. I went in with a little Bible verse printed on my picture in my pocket and nothing else, no chapstick. And (laughs) I turned around and I saw him walking in. He had file boxes stacked up to like the top of one of those like rolling carts of papers he printed off, like four or five boxes at least. And um, where he had like indexed, you know, information about my life just to pull out at random need. Wow. Um, every story I told, he could pull out, you know, on September 1st of 2004, he did this. So mm. it was, he could counter with something. So it was you know, very, a lot of manipulation and a lot of, I don't know the best word to describe it, but it's very calculated. It sounds like gaslighting. I mean, it sounds Mm -hmm. like, and I want to go over that word, if you would, at some point, Mm -hmm. because I do think it's a word that gets thrown around in people, Mm -hmm. another word, like Rachel was saying, a buzzword, but... Well, before we get to gaslighting, because I do think that that is up there just as much, if not more, with the way that we toss around the word narcissist or narcissism at nauseum. But before we do that, I want to ask you this, Amy, because I think the listeners like to know as well, when we hear these stories that just seem so horrible about being in a relationship with someone who truly is a narcissist, the first adjectives that come to mind are fear, paranoia really as the victim, if you will, feeling that you're you're actually scared and worried about what these consequences are to stand up for yourself or whatnot. And I would ask you then, what gave you the courage ultimately? Was there a final straw where you just said, you know what, enough is enough and I am going to make a change because there's so many women I know who are well aware that they're in a situation that is unsafe but they're too afraid to actually do anything about it. And probably three things. One was he left the computer open one day and I looked at it and I saw a financial statement mm. of what was really in the bank compared to what he had told me. And mm. it was like that six figure difference. Wow. No, like a seven, seven figure difference. Had a couple wow. of zeros. And then the second is he left the computer open and I saw some text message exchanges between him and a friend that were very vulgar mm. and indicated some some support and also some behaviors that he and the friend had done when they, he was supposedly a, on another trip. Mm-hmm. And then the final thing, which this and all these things, and I'm like, wow, you know, that, which one should be the final? That was when he replayed at me while I was sitting on a couch with my daughter and said, you're a fucking bitch from hell. I'm going to get a new wife. And my daughter turned to me and said, I'm going to protect you from daddy. Oh, Amy. So we left that Mm. next day. And then over the next eight years, we're in court 
probably mm-hmm. 20 times. He sent yeah. me for custody several times. The whole parental alienation was then thrown at me. Mm-hmm. Do you think some of his aggressiveness in all the custody battles and back and forth to court Mm -hmm. was more about him and power than it actually was about being a parent? Absolutely. (laughs) He didn't give a shit about the kids. It was about me. Yeah. Mm. And it's so interesting when you say that, Amy, and I'm so sorry that you went through this. Uh, There were two things that I I realized. It's in every situation when you're really dealing with a narcissist, it really has nothing to do with us at all. It's really about Mm -hmm. their need to control a situation and to win. And they don't even have empathy for the impact it has on their own children. And if you can't connect at that level, it doesn't matter if we just become a pawn. But one of the things that I noted when you said, you know, which of those should have been the last straw, I think there's so many women and men that Mm -hmm. are in relationships with a narcissist as Rachel alluded to that are so scared and afraid that they have to make choices at certain times for their own safety and protection to stay in the relationship. Yet what happens by staying is they wind up beating themselves up that they didn't get out sooner. Like I should have seen it. I should have known. I should have done this. And that is such a detrimental part of the their self-worth and their, and their self-esteem because now they're getting it from both ends. They're getting it from the narcissist who's making them appear crazy and feel inadequate and feel like this is all their fault. And then they're beating themselves up because they're really in this bind about leaving or staying. And I always hear my patients say to me, sometimes the devil you know is better than the devil you don't because what happens a lot of times when people get out of these narcissistically abusive relationships, and when I say abusive, I don't just mean physical abuse, but then they wind up having to go through eight years of court proceedings. They have to drain their financial resources. They have custody battles. And on that rare occasion that the narcissist does win, the trauma is re-traumatized every single time and over and over and over. And it's just such a painful process. And yet, despite all of that with good therapy, I have never met somebody on the other side who has, once they were free, so to speak, who has regretted having gone through all the trauma to get out. So I bring that back to you and say, is that true from your experience? 100%. I mean, I'm a better person, I'm a better therapist, a better mom. And, you know, actually think of it as a funny story now, but my daughter, actually told him, you are a psychopath from hell, get out of my life. And he ended up terminating parental rights. I think that was his way of winning because he didn't want her to have the last word. So it ended up being a good story because he's now gone, but she got to tell him off. (laughs) And that brings me to a question. And again, we will go back to gaslighting because I do think that that, that's a huge buzzword. But even sociopaths, psychotic, sociopathic tendencies, all of those words too. I don't know the difference between what a sociopath is versus someone who is psychotic. And I am here to tell you, full disclosure, that those are words that I kind of throw around all the time too. I obviously, I don't mean that literally. I say it about myself, like, oh my God, I'm, I'm such a sociopath or oh, I'm losing my mind. I'm psychotic. How does that play in with narcissism from a textbook standpoint? And why are people like me using it so haphazardly when it can really be detrimental? From a textbook standpoint, it doesn't. Those are more of a, the movies, the news, okay. social media. My mom does it too. And I'm like, mom, that's not a clinical term. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, like someone like, mm-hmm. for instance, and you know, I, I here again, we're being unpolished mm-hmm. on the corner of audacity and mm-hmm. advice. Like someone like Hannibal Lecter, like he's a sociopath, right? I mean, he eats people and murders them, right? Like, is that what a sociopath is? Or is that psychotic behavior? The malignant form of narcissism that we hear is narcissistic personality disorder with antisocial personality disorder. And that's more of the extreme. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to slash something off your body. That, what you were just talking about, isn't a clinical term either. So a lot of these clinical people throw out terms that aren't necessarily clinical or diagnosable. I see. Okay. 
Okay. So then let's kind of, we're going to take sociopath and psychotic behavior, and we're sort of going to kick that to the curb. We're going to leave it on a different corner. But while we're here <laughs> on the corner of audacity and advice, it's probably a good time to first and foremost, make sure we protect Dr. Boca's license and Amy's license as well. As you all know, this is not real therapy. These are real issues and they're emotional and they're stressful and they can be incredibly unpolished. But at the end of the day, for the purposes of today's broadcast, this is strictly for entertainment value. And really, we are just trying to educate the audience. But again, if there's anything that you have a real concern or a question in your own relationship, if this is a trigger at all, please make sure you're reaching out to your healthcare provider. We want to protect the integrity of both Amy and Dr. Boca's practice. With that all being said, let's kind of jump into gaslighting. Yes, please. I'm, I'm like sitting here at the edge of my seat because it is such a word that gets under my skin sometimes because People throw that word around in every conversation. And and then you kind of sit here and you're like, wait, was I gaslit? Was I not gaslit? What does even gaslit mean? Oh, but, and so I would love to break that down. And then the other, the flip side of that, and I think it's really important for our listeners to start to identify what some of these characteristics are that Amy is sharing with us, both from a behavioral perspective and, you know, the gaslighting is more of a communicative in my way of differentiating things way of being, and we can kind of look at those, but there are different types. There may not be 19 different types of narcissism, mm -hmm. but there are some categorical differences in the way that certain narcissism presents itself. And I would love if you could speak about that too, Amy. Perfect. So gaslighting first. Yes, please. Okay. Yeah, I think I agree. It is overused, almost to the point where we're losing its meaning. Mm -hmm. And I hate that because it is you know, a form of psychological manipulation. Um, interesting background of where it came about. It was in an old movie where with Ingrid Berman and the um, spouse wanted to make her go crazy so he could get her inheritance. So he would make noises in the house and sounds and try to make her think that things were happening, but they really weren't. Mm. But, um, so it's a form of manipulation where over time, and that's the key is over time, so there actually has to be some form of relationship going. So you can't be gaslit on a thread on Facebook. It has to be like an actual relationship that's ongoing. But where the person that's doing the gaslighting toward the victim will do so starting off slow and then over time it builds tends to make the person think that they can't be believed or what they think is happening isn't. Um, it can be done through denying you didn't hear that or that's not how it really happened or I think this is what happened. So it starts out really subtle. And then over time, they might add in other people or, well, that's not how so-and-so heard it. They counter what was said or making it trivial. So, well, it didn't hurt that bad. Or um, So it, it's, it's very subtle in the beginning. And then it kind of snowballs and snowballs until the person begins to question their reality. Mm. Real quick, I want to jump in on something. I am so happy, Amy, that you debunked the myth of where the term came from. But what's interesting is, and this is maybe where we all go down the rabbit hole, because there's so much content out on the internet. I've said this a million times without real context or that they don't go hands in hand. I read somewhere that gaslighting came from, and maybe it was from a movie or that piece, I'm not 100% sure, but what I had read was it came from an actual scenario where somebody wanted to completely mentally mess up the mind of their partner, so they turned the gas stove on so that Again, in this make-believe forum, you can't see gas, you can smell it, but it's not really mm. tangible. And the person went deranged and that kind of played into this whole make-believe fairy tale of I'm going to try to get you to do something. So I'm going to take my interpretation <laughs> and, and throw it in the garbage also because I don't want to gaslight myself on what the definition of gaslighting is. Well, and to me, Rachel, as you're saying this, I'm thinking they both work. And do we actually even know where it really started right. from? Because I feel like it fell out of literally thin air. It was like in the 90s, we didn't know it existed. And then all of a sudden, it became the buzzword of the century. So, And that brings me to a question about how you're describing 
being gaslit, Amy, because when you said it starts out very slowly, it's very subtle, it's small little things here and there. And then over time, the person who's being gaslit doesn't even know the difference between what's real and what's not real. My question is the, the narcissist who is manipulating this gaslighting, are they even aware of what they're doing? That's where I have the disconnect because are they that manipulative that they know what these small little drips and drabs that they're alluding to aren't real? Or in their mind, do they think what they're piecemealing together to their quote unquote victim is real? Well, first, I want to be clear that you can gaslight someone without being a narcissist. Okay. Not all narcissists gaslight. Oh. So it's not like okay. mutually exclusive. Okay. Okay. I want to take a minute to understand that again. So I, as someone who is not a narcissist, I can gaslight someone, but it doesn't make me a narcissist. But do all narcissists gaslight? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Okay. Well, then let's just take pause for a minute. If I'm not a narcissist, how would I gaslight someone? Would it be manipulating my kids to make sure that they clean up the dishes? Is that gaslighting of a non-narcissist? Description of what gaslighting is, none of it is a narcissist does this. It's just a a way someone over time manipulates someone to think that they're losing their mind or that they can't be trusted or believed or they are losing their sense of reality. Okay, so then I guess the question then if we're just going to keep it with narcissists is... Does the narcissist know? Are they cognitively aware that they are behaving in a way to make someone else slowly over time lose their mind? The thing with the narcissist is there's theories and until we can open up a brain of a narcissist, we really don't know. Mm. Um, Nothing makes sense with a narcissist. That's another thing is it doesn't make sense. It's not logical. Mm. And so... We can never definitively say, do they know they're lying? Do they know they're manipulating? Because we can't do a study on people with narcissistic personality disorder because how would we get subjects? Right. And and so it's so interesting because when I was in graduate school and I was learning about personality disorders, like the true narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, antisocial, all of those that are real diagnostic in this diagnostic statistical manual, you learn that they're egocentric. So like unlike something like, and I know that's a big word for our listeners and all that means the differentiation between an egocentric thing and an egodystonic thing is when you have anxiety, you know it sucks, right? You hate it. It's impairing your life and you are fully aware of it. And one of the criteria, not the the actual criteria in the book, but one of the ways it's described is that people with personality disorders, it's so ingrained in who they are that they don't know, they're not bothered by it, that usually it's the people around them that are struggling with the way that they are. So what happens is a narcissist usually is not something, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Amy, but narcissists don't just like knock on my door and my office and be like, yo, Dr. B, can you help me out? Because I'm struggling in my life. That's not how it happens. They think everything's fine. If they're coming and they're not being like pulled in either by their wife or husband, whoever, you know, is escorting them saying, fix this person, they're coming in because it's either part of their divorce agreement or it's part of after they've lost their job, they've lost their spouse, they've lost their kids. They kind of wake up one morning and be like, well, I get it. It's everybody else's fault, but maybe I should just go and see if maybe there's something I can do differently. And then even when they come in, they try to give us the sweet talk. Everything is everybody else's fault and, they're, and they present themselves as so great. So it's just such a process to finally get a narcissist, both a man and a woman, to really understand what's going on. So when Rachel asks these questions and you say, we don't really know because it's in the brain somewhere and we don't have a lot of answers, I believe that. I don't necessarily believe that all narcissists do things intentionally knowing that they're doing them. No, I agree. And there's not a disturbance in their life. It's hard to say whether they, they're not doing it because it's not causing you know, anxiety, it's not causing depression, it's not saying that they perceive it to be difficult. You know, whether they think they're doing it or not, 
they're not going to really know because it's not causing a problem, at least for them. Right. It's a lot. I mean, it is really a heavy topic because it just feels like there's one person who is so vulnerable and there's another person who is just so powerful. And the dichotomy between the two just seems to be so off kilt that even the conversation, I can feel even like my heart pounding a little bit because the idea of putting myself in a situation where I would be so what would be perceived as powerless is just is heartbreaking, honestly. Mm -hmm. But it does lead to a question that I guess mainstream media, society, again, whether we're ignorant to this or not, I would imagine it seems as though more times than not, the narcissists tend to be more prevalent in men. And I was thinking in preparation for our conversation that if we look to Faye Dunaway in Mommy Dearest, or if we looked at Meryl Streep, she was in The Devil Wears Prada and was the main antagonist. Those were female, I guess, textbook narcissistic behavior in females. Are we seeing in today's world, Amy, more and more females that are being diagnosed as narcissists, or is it still more heavily weighed with men? Textbook-wise, we're still seeing it more prominent in men. I think the media is portraying a few more females in those roles. I think who you just described does get to the question of the different types. Okay. Like in The Devil Wears Product, we're seeing more of that overt. It's grandiose. It's, you know, hey, world, look at me. I walk into a room. I want people to see me. I'm awesome. So... That's more of a the grandiose and over that needs attention, needs admiration. If you don't give the attention or the admiration that the person thinks they deserve, that's when you may see conflict. Okay. Versus okay. what are some of the other types of yeah. narcissists? So, a covert. You can think of the person in the hat and sunglasses walking into the room. Obviously for attention, but this is the woe is me narcissist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they have often a sneeze, no one says, God bless you, the world's over. Okay. They have that kind of need for attention. Both have low self-esteem, which is mm-hmm. we don't think of with narcissists. Yeah. But the way they present that need for self-esteem is different. So that's um, so interesting. All right, Dr. Brooke, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's that's okay, Rach, because it, it is interesting. And that's why I asked, you know, about the different types of it, because I think everybody kind of goes with the overt one because it's obvious to see and it and it's so in your face. But the covert one really is one where you see them kind of not think they're doing well professionally, even though they're very successful, they'll say, yeah, you know, oh, I'm not that way. And in order to elicit the responses from other people to kind of build them up and tell them, oh, no, you're amazing. You're the greatest scientist ever, whatever profession you want to put in there. It's a little easier, in my opinion, to see in the covert narcissist what you just said, that low self-esteem. Because when we think of a narcissist on the surface, we think, oh, my God, they feel so amazing about themselves. They think they're the greatest things since sliced bread. But the truth is, when I say to people, underneath a narcissist is truly the most wounded of pretty much any human being. They're, they look at me and they're like, but what are you talking about? And so I'm so happy that you said that. And I hope our listeners heard that. It's not just those grandiose, arrogant, in-your-face individuals that we are like, oh, they're narcissistic. There are the subtle ones. And oftentimes it's almost harder with the subtle ones because they try to tell you how great they are in other areas or like, oh, but look how good I am with my kids. Or they'll say, I'm not so amazing here and there, and but they want you to do it and they blame you in subtle ways. And it just kind of chips away at you, kind of like the gaslighting does. And so can you speak to that realization that maybe our listeners just heard for the first time, but the ones that I try to instill in my patients, where does this low self-esteem come from? As you've mentioned before, we talk about attachment styles, like does it come from a specific attachment style? Does it come from genetics? Like where do these narcissists breed? (laughs) We think it it is a little bit of the nature, but probably more nurture. Mm -hmm. And either there was you know, too much over coddling and the kids weren't able to you know, experience the world or there wasn't enough and we had that neglect or the abuse. 
And so either one could lead to that, you know, insecure, some possibly the insecure avoidant or the you know, insecure anxious, but either one, there's still the insecure attachment. And so it's a over attempt at regulating that. What's unbelievable to me that I still can't wrap my head around is that narcissists are so volatile and detrimental in that personal relationship. And yet it does seem, and I may be generalizing here, but it does seem that narcissists for the most part on a professional basis seem to be successful, successful as defined by powerful. And it's just unbelievable to me that people in whomever the narcissist professional wheelhouse wouldn't be able to see through those narcissistic tendencies unless the narcissistic behavior is only reserved for what goes on at home. So I don't understand that really. Maybe you can speak to that a little bit. How would a narcissist know how to keep their P's and Q's in check professionally and climb up that ladder and be successful, but then at home completely derail their personal relationships with others? There's usually a only to some extent can people keep it together at all times. Okay. Eventually, it's going to be limited to a certain person that's going to be where I don't have to keep it together at all times at home or I don't have to keep it together at all times in this group of friends that their ability to keep it together and keep it perfect and be that perfect everything at work is going to be exhausting mm -hmm. and it's usually when they get home that they can't do it and they mm -hmm. can't put on that facade anymore yeah when I think about that I think oh you know a lot of times at work they're getting valued and they're getting reinforced for the successes and they're seen in this good light and and oftentimes that the ones that are narcissistic are in powerful positions so they have the control already over their subordinates and so their subordinates by definition are giving them that validation and that that grandiose mm -hmm. admiration that they're looking for so it kind of feeds that narcissistic supply that they're looking for and when you mix it into an a relationship interpersonally at home where there's not that submissive automatic value or evaluation or um, admiration that we put on the person and we ask them to actually do responsibilities or a husband's asking his, you know, his wife, you know, I need you to attend to the kids or you suck at doing this, right? And they're not getting that supply that they're mm -hmm. looking for. That's when I, I see them losing it. So I, you know, Rach, I think that dichotomy there can sometimes, that might be why it gets reinforced at that place. And it's common for a narcissist to pair with a high level professional, you know, high up their um, partner because it lifts their ego. Yes. Mm. And so when they get home and the person has work to do or it's also successful and it's also getting praise, that can be a breaking point. Yeah. And that's such a great, a great point, because I was going to ask you, what kind of partners are they looking for that it usually works with? Because I just saw a statistic that 60% of relationships with a narcissist, whether it's a woman or a man, lead to divorce. So obviously, even though it might look good initially, and you have that impactful power couple or that impactful magnetic connection, it's not working. So what do they find in their relationships? Or what are they searching for where they feel as though this could be a relationship that could work for them? It's usually the impact. Mm -hmm. Someone that's successful and someone that feels that surprise. Interesting. Wow. Amy, you mentioned earlier that one of the key characteristics of someone who's a true narcissist is one who doesn't show any empathy. How does love factor in? Can a narcissist actually love another or does that fall in and overlap with empathy? Does themselves count? <laughs> themselves aside. <laughs> is, do they only love themselves? That, that would be my opinion. Yeah, even a child. And I know in your case that, you know, that's a specific scenario where I, I guess we can gather the answer to that one. But would a narcissist not have empathy or love for maybe their adult counterpart that they've been gaslighting and manipulating and so on and so forth? But then with a child, it's a whole separate entity or it's basically all or none when it comes to empathy and love of others. You know, we look back at attachment styles and people that have that insecure attachment and then trying to foster an attachment with someone else. It's hard. Wow. 
Amy, do you believe that a narcissist can change? I mean, here you are a therapist. Here I am, you know, a therapist. What is your take and stance on that? Depends on where they're on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Think if they're leaning more toward the approaching that malignant style, they have to admit they want change or that there is a problem. And if someone's coming to our office and says, well, I'm here, but there's no problem, what do we do with that? And so if someone's not admitting that there is a problem, it's very hard to fix that. And if you get somebody to, you know, over time, Mm -hmm. acknowledge that, oh, okay, like maybe you've built the relationship with them enough, which takes a long time if they're willing. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that they're on the continuum, maybe a little bit further than usual that we would say, oh, they're treatable, so to speak. But do you, have you seen success with individuals who came in there thinking there wasn't a problem and finding out there was and making change? I think there is success with that as long as the key component is recognizing that there's a problem, that I'm part Mm -hmm. of the problem and that I can't change if I want to. Is there a typical pattern that, you know, the cycle that you tend to see in a narcissistic relationship that our audience, if they're still unsure, might be able to say, hey, I am seeing this cycle play out in the relationship. Maybe that's a sign. And then could you also then speak to what is the process as you're extricating yourself from that relationship? Because my guess is that a true narcissist is going to try to rein you back in. And so can you speak to our audience about maybe how to avoid that pitfall? So so first on the initial phase, it's going to be probably you're going to see different terms of it online, but what I'm going to call it is going to be too much too soon. You're Mm -hmm. going to see Maybe first or second date, I see a future with you. You're the one. I love you. I've never met anyone like you. So like the rings are we rolling in. Mm-hmm. And pretty soon after that, you may see some criticisms or you know devaluation, but it, it'll pretty much an abrupt change. Mm-hmm. And then you may see back a little bit more toward that, you know, what we call it, the love bombing or more of that future making. And it'll kind of cycle around for a little bit. And that's kind of where you start questioning yourself. That that'll probably cycle around a little bit, and then make it more intense each go around. And okay. with the you know trying to get out of it, and back into what you might see with the cycle, so isolation, friends and family, people asking you know, is this okay? Are you sure you're fine? So I, so maybe pulled away from people you used to hang out with. Um, less time from things you cared about. Mm-hmm. Getting out of the relationship, safety first, hundred percent safety. The most dangerous time in a relationship is always right before a woman leaves or, you know, male, whatever it is. So make sure that you have a safety plan and exit strategy. If you are in a marital relationship, probably talking to a counselor first. If not, have a place to go that's safe. Talk to someone so you have a plan on it. Just sort of, you know, get your things and know where you're going. Well, let me ask you this. I know we're rounding out our time together, and I certainly want to make sure our listeners know how to reach you. So I'd like you to share how you can be contacted if need be. But kind of as a final thought, do you have any tips, maybe like three top tips that you can convey to our listeners if in the event they really do feel as though, wow, hold on a second. I think I'm in a narcissistic relationship here. I know things haven't been great. We've been kind of back and forth and it's been tenuous. But now after listening to this podcast, I'm fairly concerned and I need to do something about it. What would you say to those listeners? First, go with your gut. Um, if your intuition is telling you something's not right, then to go with that and to seek help, um, therapy, doctor friends, you're already in farther in this and showing signs of you know trauma or anything like that, that you definitely need to probably seek help from a licensed therapist. And that and it's never too late. I know a lot of women that are in these positions think it's too late. It's not. You get out and do better. Those are incredibly important tips. Thank you so much for sharing Thank that, you. Amy. If any of our listeners want to get in touch with you, how do we do that? Can you share some of your website information, your email? And we'll link it too on the bottom of our information on our podcast platform. But just if people are listening now and they have a piece of paper and a pen and they want to reach you, how can they? So my website is nutritionandandtherapy.com. And on that, you have links to everything and you can contact me from there as well. Okay. Fantastic. Fantastic. Dr. Boga, final thoughts. I'm going to throw it to you before we thank Amy and sign off for the week. 
Yeah, this was amazing. Um, And I really hope that our listeners took some of what Amy was saying and maybe some light bulbs went off for us because I do think that sometimes, as Amy said, this process starts very slow. The gaslighting starts very slow. The seduction into the cycle starts very slow. And then it just kind of keeps going and it keeps going. And one day you kind of wake up and you're like, huh, wait a minute, what the hell is happening here? And then it starts to cycle faster almost and it becomes more elevated and more extreme. And so then eventually it becomes potentially physical. And so I think that's the important piece of this here is that be kind to yourself if you do wake up from this, even if like Amy, a mental health professional who, you know, we sit there and we say, oh my God, we should have seen this. But one of the the criteria, Amy, that you were saying is that especially the covert narcissists, they match with the empath, the compassionate people that listen and are willing to help, so to speak, right? So we're the vulnerable population and it's okay. You shouldn't beat yourself up if you didn't see it. And now that you do see it, we hope that you have some confidence or will get the confidence and the help necessary so that you can put together that plan, noting that this is going to be difficult, but with the right support, it's never too late and you can get out. And this goes for men and women. It is not just men who are narcissists. And I think that's another really valuable thing that you shared with us, Amy, that it's everybody and it's increasing. And I believe it's increasing a lot because A, we're not using the term correctly. So thank you for debunking (laughs) some of that, right? So a lot of those narcissists aren't really narcissists. It is on a continuum. So where are we compressing that continuum and looking at what's that range? But also because of things like social media, I mean, if we really think about it, what is social media enforcing or reinforcing? And that is taking selfies and, you know, looking for admiration and validation from likes and shares and things like that. And so we're creating a culture that is really just more involved in focusing on themselves than other people. Now, is that narcissistic personality disorder? No, but it is leading us to just have a more detached society where we are focusing solely on ourselves, at least in my opinion. So thank you, Amy. I mean, the information was so valuable and I'm just so happy, Rachel, that you brought Amy here because we have been talking about this for so long. So thank you, Amy. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you with us, Amy. And if I can just say, finally, as we as we check out for the week, I want to wish you a happy divorce anniversary. Yes. Because you, you are a real success story and Survivor. you are an inspiration to others. And as Amy said, of all the valuable pieces of wisdom she shared with us today, something that, that resonated with me is that it's never, ever, ever too late. So please have value in yourself and recognize your self-worth and take pause and acknowledgement of, of all of the tools that we've talked about today to get yourself out of a situation if you find yourself um, because it is never too late. Amy, thank you so much for your time and attention. It's been invaluable. And as we always say with our guests, once a guest, always a guest, you're welcome back here on the corner of Audacity and Advice. Anytime you have an open invitation. And from Dr. Boca and myself, I thank you. Those of you out there that have questions questions, comments, concerns. We will link Amy's information at the bottom of the podcast, but you can find us as well as always at unpolishedtherapy at gmail.com. You can find us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at unpolishedtherapy. And we will look forward to another week next week where we meet you on the corner of audacity and advice. Today, my wheels got spun upside down. I know Dr. Boga's wheels got spun upside down, but Amy, you did truly help us make some meaning out of the madness that is narcissistic behaviors and narcissism in general. So thank you for that. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Great sesh, girls. Hey, everyone, like what you heard? Then don't miss out on what comes next. Subscribe now and please give the girls a five-star rating. Learn more at www.unpolishedtherapy.com. Find and like them on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll see you next week when Rachel Silvercone and Dr. Boca ditch the couch, grab the mic, and break down all the wreckage.